redeeming grace and power and forgiveness that he transforms us and not just not just a spiritual sense of our souls but also in practical ways he's redeeming our lives on a regular basis and uh, we're grateful for that and he transforms uh, marriages he transforms our relationships at work he transforms us in every way that you can imagine and uh, we're incredibly grateful for that and michael and tori thank you for your honesty your vulnerability and sharing that story uh, with your church family and uh, we love you, and we're grateful that you're here and to see the work that God's doing and still redeeming uh, your marriage and those beautiful children uh, that he has a wonderful plan for. And so on each one of you, we're, we're thankful that you're here. Um, on behalf of the uh, church leadership, I just want to say that we love you, uh, pray for you, and care about you probably more than you realize. And if you're a guest with us, I want to uh, just welcome you. And uh, be one to just invite you, if you wouldn't mind, looking at your worship program. You'll find out some stuff about the church. Uh, maybe fill out a connection card that's in there. And uh, I want to give you a heads up for your parent today. I know sometimes parents bring your little ones into church, and uh, we're very grateful for that. We love having them um, here in, in the service with each one of us, and their little noises and playing video games on your phone or whatever they usually do. That's, that's uh, wonderful to have uh, by us. So I want to give you a heads up that uh, today's message is of uh, more mature content because of the passage of Scripture it lends itself towards that. And uh, you're welcome, more than welcome, to keep those children in the service. But know this, you're going to need to have a conversation with them probably afterwards about some of the things that I say. And uh, we want you to have that conversation. If you have children that you think are not old enough to handle that, um, we have a Bridge Kids Ministry uh, birth through fifth grade, which I was telling the first service, I think is about 12 years old, but it's been a long time since I've been in fifth grade, so I don't remember exactly how old that is. But uh, birth through fifth grade um, is over in our, the other wing of the theater here, and uh, would love to care for your children in that way. And then also there's a TV out in the lobby and a video venue over in Theater 14 that you're more than welcome to go to. I'm going to pray here in just a moment. But uh, before I do that, I um, wanted to also make you aware of something that's happening at our church. It's not in your worship program because we solidified that we're doing it um, really uh, last night, to be real honest with you. Um, but we're going to host a secret church simulcast. Let me tell you what secret church is. Secret church is, there's persecuted churches all around the world, and uh, when they meet, they have to meet in secret. And a lot of times when they meet, uh, they don't just go for, you know, 55 minutes or however long, say the do a whole deal, and they get into the Word, and, and they go, they've got that time, they're going to redeem that time, they'll go for like six or so hours at a time, and uh, so uh, on uh, 7 o'clock on, on November 4th, we're going to be meeting and doing a secret church simulcast meeting, and it's going to go from 7 p.m. until 1 a.m., they're going to be studying the Scriptures, it's going to be a follow-up really to today's message, it's going to talk about some things that I'm not going to be able to talk about, obviously we're going to have six hours, uh, it's going to be taught by a guy, David Platt, who wrote a book called Radical that's impacted some of your lives, and we're going to be simulcasting from his church in Alabama to our church office on November 4th, 7 o'clock p.m. till 1 o'clock in the morning, and uh, if you want to be a part of that, go to the Connections kiosk. Uh, before you leave, there's some study guides that go with that. Um, it'll be time of praying and a time of studying God's Word, talking about sexuality, talking about marriage, talking about the gospel and the gospel's role in that, talking about topics like polygamy and just things that we wouldn't even have time to get into in today's message. And so you're invited uh, to be a part of that. Just go to the Connections kiosk if you want to be a part of that. And uh, what we're doing today is we're continuing our series, if you haven't been with us, entitled Four. And the Four series is What Are We For?, as followers of Jesus Christ, and as we should be for whatever he's for. And I shared with you at the beginning, kind of the premise of this series is that people outside the church oftentimes talk about Christians as if they're against everything, that we're anti-gay, that we're judgmental, that we're hypocritical, that we're against political movements, that we love war, and we're against all this stuff, against essentially people. And when you look at the scriptures, God says that we're to love him, we're to love people, ultimately for his glory, and that's what we've been talking about as we've been going through the Ten Commandments. And we're going to continue that today. As we do the next, the seventh part of this series, we've got a few parts left, and so you're all welcome to be a part of the rest of this series. Let me pray for us before we open up God's Word. Father God, we thank you so much that nothing can separate us from your love, not angels or demons or, or anything, God, and, and the sin that so easily entangles us, God, we throw all that off today, and we ask that we be able to pursue you and your son Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who has redeemed so many of us. I pray if there's any that don't know you, that they would be redeemed today, that their hearts would be gripped. I pray if there's any cultural Christians that just do church, that just go to church, it's just what you've done or always been around, I, I pray, God, that you would take us out of that and you would revitalize our hearts. Give us life. Forgive our sins. God, we confess our sins. The mental ones, the ones that people can see, the ones that no one can see. And please cleanse us from that and change us. Make us different as a result of opening your word today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it shouldn't be hard to get your attention talking about today's topic. In case you haven't figured it out, we're talking about sex today. 
and you hear about sex everywhere. Now, some people, you get nervous, we start talking about sex at church, because they're like, doesn't belong there, right? Like, sex is all over our culture. We live in a sex-saturated society. You go to the mall, and there's sex. They're using sex to sell stuff. They're using sex to try and lure you into stuff. They, you go read the newspaper, there's sex on there. You, any advertisements, there's sex. You watch commercials. I don't know the study on this, but I'm going to guess. If you watch, one in three commercials probably has sex in it in some way to sell something. And they'll be selling something that have anything to do with it. will be like a big greasy cheeseburger. And they'll use sex, like sexy to present the cheeseburger or something. You use like, they'll sell like air freshener. And they'll be using some sex appeal to the thing. Let me tell you something. Ain't nothing sexy about stank. Okay? And if you need air freshener, you got some stank. And I don't know if it's body air freshener, if it's you got stank mouth, I don't know if you got a stanky room, you got stanky pets. But there's nothing sexy about stank. But they try to make it sexy, you know why? Because sex sells. And so sex is in all of our advertisements. You ever listen to the songs, the love songs that are out there? They're talking about sex. Sex is in the songs, sex is at the mall, sex is on TV, sex is on the radio, sex is in the commercials. The Kaiser Family Foundation did a study of television programs since 1998 until I think their study was around 2005, 2008, somewhere in that time frame. Sexual scenes on television and shows, not just the commercials and all that stuff, in shows uh, had doubled. And let me tell you something, in 1998, it wasn't that there weren't any sex scenes, but they had doubled in about a 10-year time frame. 70% of all shows, that's excluding children's shows and sports and news, 70% of all shows have sexual content. The average went in one hour of programming, not doing commercials and stuff, five sexual scenes. We're bombarded with sex. Sex is everywhere, but we don't talk about it at church, right? And so we get the idea that God is against sex. Let me tell you something, God's not against sex. (laughs) Newsflash, he created it. God's for sex. I'm not saying, however that God is for sexual perversions. And I'm not saying he's for us saturating our culture with tearing sex out of the context it was meant to be given in as a good gift to us and isolated and then dumped all over people. I'm not saying it's for that, but he's for sex. And we live in a sex-saturated society. Now you take that and you combine that with the fact that we live in a very non-committal culture. So we live in a sex-saturated society and a very non-committal culture. Best analogy I can give you for that is just think about Christianity. We want Christianity with all the benefits and none of the cost. We want all of the rewards and none of the responsibility. And we want Jesus to fulfill our dreams. And we want God to fix our circumstances. And we want the abundant life. And we want his forgiveness. And so we come to his cross and we come to the foot of the cross for his forgiveness. But as soon as he talks about denying ourselves and taking up our own, I don't want anything to do with that message. We love the idea that he would give us the abundant life, that he would fulfill our dreams. He's going to give us a life that we can't even dream up. But then when he says things like, if you want to save your life, you lose your life. Well, that doesn't really apply to us, right? Or we come to a story like the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, you sell all your possessions, you give your money to the poor. And we say, well, that's an isolation. That's just for that guy because he loves his stuff way more than I love my stuff. Jesus would never say that to me. And we reapply and we misinterpret. You know why? Because we're, we're commitment averse. We live in a non-committal culture. Now, if you think about that, we live in a sex-saturated society and a non-committal culture, and you put those two things together, what do you think you get? It's not sexual commitment, but that's what God is for. God is for sexual commitment, and that's what we're going to talk about today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20. It's the second book in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20. I'll start reading in verse 1 to review some of the stuff that we've talked about through this series, in case you haven't been with us, but we're really going to focus in on verse 14 today talking about how God is for sexual commitment. Now, we've become famous for being against a lot of things. You know, one of the things that many people think we're against is sex. We're not against sex. God's for sex in its context, in a context of sexual commitment. And he talks about it, and he knew it was such a dangerous thing that he talked about it even back when he gave the Ten Commandments. And we've been going through the Ten Commandments. If you haven't been with us, I've shared multiple times, the key to understanding these is that these are not just rules that came dropping from the sky. See, sometimes they're presented like that. Like, if you just obey these rules, then God will be happy with you. And everybody kind of messes up sometimes, so it's kind of cool, and you probably are the exception. And you gotta, and we kind of cover it all up, make it fit our lives anyways. But here's the deal. These weren't rules ever to make God happy with you. These are rules that are given in a context, and that context is relationship. These people already have a relationship with God. The key to having a relationship with God is not obeying these rules. See, the key to having a relationship with God is that by grace, he chooses you just as he chose them. He decided to pull them out of bondage. They were 400 years in bondage in Egypt. By grace, he called them out of that bondage. He freed them because he's a God of freedom. 
And he rescued them and redeemed them and delivered them. And now they're in a relationship. They've been in this relationship for three months now. And now God's going to tell them how to live in that relationship of freedom. See, a lot of times we think freedom is we do whatever we want. But you know what that always leads to? Look at anybody's life who does it. It leads to more bondage. And so what God does is he sets these parameters. He sets these guidelines. He says, you want to live in freedom? Here's how you live in freedom. And he speaks to his people in Exodus chapter 20. And he speaks to all of them, not just to Moses. He speaks to all of them. The majestic and transcendent and holy other God comes to earth and the earth starts to shake. Mount Sinai is shaking and it's a violent scene. The mountain's shaking violently and the thunder's rumbling and the lightning's going through the sky and God speaks to two million people and they're so terrified that when it's done, they say, we don't ever want to hear him again. Moses, you just speak to us. This is what he said on that day. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, Moses tells us. I am the Lord, your God. I am a personal God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am the God who freed you. And we saw the first week because he's for freedom. He didn't bring them out of bondage to the Egyptians so he could put them in more bondage to rules, to religion. He didn't bring them from bondage to bondage. He brought them from bondage to freedom because he's a God for freedom. And he talks about how to live in that freedom. And he says, you shall have no other gods before me because every other God will lead you to more bondage. If it's yourself that's sitting on the throne of your life, a ministry, your money, your job, your reputation, another person, they'll all lead you to bondage, bondage to that. But I'm a God of freedom. Don't set any other God before you. You shall not make for yourself an idol because he's for the real thing in the form of anything. That's exhaustive. There are no other phonies that you can put in my place. He's for the real thing. Not anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm jealous for you with a burning zeal. I'm pursuing you, and there's consequences for your decisions, good and bad. Punishing the children for the sin of the fathers for the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then unashamedly, he says he's for the fame of his name, And as his follower, you wear his name. He says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And then verse 8, we see a unique commandment. Maybe you remember that verses 8 through 11, when it talks about the Sabbath, that's a different commandment because it's the one of all ten commandments. It's the one commandment that's not repeated in the New Testament. But we still see that God is for rest. And we saw that that rest is ultimately not about a day, and it's not about a vacation, it's not about a holiday, it's about finding rest for your soul, rest that comes in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who says, come to me all who are burdened, and some of you have burdens today, come to me all who are weary, come to me all who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your soul. And we saw these four rest. And then in verse 12, it says, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you, and we saw that these four honor, and how did that one go? We oftentimes don't do follow-up on the on application of these messages. Did you call mom and dad? Did you pray for mom and dad? Did you invite mom and dad over? Send that email, reconcile that relationship. And then last week, we saw Jason teach us that he, God's for life. You shall not murder. And then this week, we have, again, just a few words for the commandments. Very simple, very clear. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Very literally, never commit adultery. A very simple command, easy to say in words. What is God doing here? Is he robbing us from a sexual experience that may be so gratifying, so satisfying? Or is he a God who's for freedom and wants us to experience sex in freedom? That God's actually for sexual freedom, but that sexual freedom requires sexual commitment. And so what he's talking about when he says adultery is taking it out of the context of that sexually committed relationship. And it's a relationship that's commitment between one man and one woman and a marriage covenant and a marriage commitment where they're to be joined together in that commitment with one another, exclusive from all the other deception and all the other things that we're being told in our society, in the sexually saturated society, and all the lies that are being presented in the non-committal culture, and Jesus is for, and God is for, sexual commitment. But here's the thing with sexual commitment. Sexual commitment always comes with a cost. Sexual commitment always comes with a cost. If you think about any commitment, it comes with a cost. But we live in a culture where we want the benefits, we don't want the cost. We want the rewards, we don't want the responsibility. Like, who doesn't want to be in good shape? Like, who wouldn't want to lose a few pounds, right? But in order to do that, you've got to go work out. 
No one wants to do that. Like, who wants to go do sacrifice and the time and the sweat and all that stuff? Why do you think diet pills are such a big business? And they do commercials. They say, well, it's not your fault you're fat. It's not, it's not because you're sitting there watching this commercial eating, you know, donuts or whatever you're doing right there. It's not your fault you're fat. Just take this pill for $19.95. We'll send it to you. We'll give you three extra gifts to it. And you can put it on your credit card. You don't even really have to pay for it. You can take on a debt. And we'll send this to you. And we've got some other stuff. You just add water, microwave it, mix it up. You don't really, it'll take you like 30 seconds. You can have this thing. And you'll be in super shape. And they show some guy. And you're like, yeah, right. Maybe he drank it before the commercial. But anyway, there's this good abs of steel. Anyway, you got this thing on there. And that's why diet pills are a multi-million dollar business. Because we want the benefits, we don't want the cost. And you look at society and you think, there are, there are all these choices that are out there. You add that into our culture. And you think to yourself, well, well, there's so many choices, we should be satisfied. You know, studies show that affluent societies with all these choices are actually more depressed than other societies. And it has to do, it's not the sole cause, but it has to do with all the choices. Do you ever go to the, the sporting goods store and try and buy a pair of shoes? Like, what brand do you buy? I go in there, I'm looking for running shoes. Well, do you run this way or do you run? I don't know. I just like run. I just got to read like, I got to have like a degree to buy a pair of shoes. Or, or, or I was on the first service. I like cheese a lot. I would say that maybe I would say that I love cheese. In fact, it's my favorite food. Okay, if I'm being honest with you, I think it should be its own food group. Like not dairy, like cheese should be its own food group. And sometimes I'll go to the store and my wife will just write on the little note card of stuff I'm supposed to get, cheese. <laughs> you ever do that? Do you know how many cheeses there are at the grocery store? There's like Swiss cheese and cheddar cheese and American cheese and other country cheeses and Colby Jack cheese and Pepper Jack cheese and yellow cheese and orange cheese and organic cheese and not organic cheese. And if you know what they do to non-organic cheese, I don't want to know because I like it and it's cheaper. And so there's all these cheeses that are there. But you know what? If I pick one, essentially I'm saying no to all the others. That's why affluent societies have such a hard time with making choices. And that's why with the multitude of choices, it doesn't make them happier, it makes them more depressed. Because when you pick one, what if you're saying no to something else that's really good? See, whenever you pick one, there's a cost associated because you're saying no to all others. And that's what this commandment is saying. That you make a commitment, a sexual commitment, and sex is to be enjoyed within that context. And that's saying no to all the other lies that are out there and all the other potential that's out there and all the other fantasies that are out there and all those other things. You're saying no to that because I've given you this gift and it's a great gift. But we don't want to do that. That's why adultery is big business in our society. And I don't just mean porn. That's huge business. But I mean specifically adultery, extramarital affairs outside of the marriage covenant, people that have already made the marriage covenant. In fact, I was reading an article this week about a guy named Noel Bitterman. Noel Bitterman is quoted in this article as saying, monogamy is a failed experiment. <laughs> it's an experiment. That's an interesting thought process. The guy also has on his computer screen, life is short, have an affair. Interestingly enough, he's married and has two children. His wife was interviewed in this article, and she says, well, that's not, that's not us, though. Like, sure, I'd rather my husband were out curing cancer, but this is just a business. It just pays the money. That's not them, apparently. But it's a whole lot of other people. And Bitterman's story is that he was a sports agent for professional athletes. And what ended up happening is he realized what it was like to negotiate around all these adulterous relationships, and he thought, I'll bring this to the general public. I'll, I'll offer this to other folks, too, that, that aren't just part of the professional athletic world. And he started a website. And talk about big business. His website alone produces $60 million a year of brokering adulterous relationships. It markets towards women so that the women will come sign up, but it attracts a ton of men. Almost every man that signed up on the website is married. 80% of the women are married. $60 million a year in revenue. $20 million a year in profits. Who's doing this? A lot of people at $60 million a year. And why? Because they believe a lie that they can have something that's a good gift outside of the context of that gift. But let me clarify something with this passage of Scripture where it says that you shall never commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. This is not an anti-sex verse. See, God is not anti-sex. He created it. And what he creates is good. He didn't create something evil to have a good end. He created something good. And remember, everything he created was good. Remember at the beginning? He created the heaven and earth, and it was good. He created day and night, and it was good. And he created the fish and the birds and the horses, and they were good. And he created all these different things, and it was good. He created the day, the Sabbath, and it was good. And he blessed that day, and he created man, and it was good. And remember, there was one thing that was not good, though. It was that man was alone. And he had Adam go out and name all the animals. Can you imagine what that scene was like? 
Like, who comes up with rhinoceros as a name? And so he, he names a rhinoceros and pterodactyl and tyrannosaurus and zebra. <laughs> zebra. Anyway, anyway, I don't know how he came up with these names, but he names all these animals and sees all of God's creation. And there's no suitable helper. There's no suitable companion. And so what God does is he has Adam fall into a deep sleep. He does the first surgery on humankind. He pulls a rib out of the man, bone of his bones and flesh of his flesh. And he creates Eve. And Adam wakes up and he sees this beautiful creature who's like him but not like him. Who's created in God's image. And there's no shame. They're naked. There's no shame. There's no sin yet. And he looks at this creature and let me tell you something. They didn't need a compatibility test. (laughs) There weren't a lot of options. There were, anyway, had to explain it. So uh, he sees her. He's overwhelmed with her beauty. He says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then God's the one who says, in the next verse, in Genesis chapter 2, it's for this reason, after that happens, it's for this reason a man will leave his father and mother. See, this relationship between a husband and wife is different than any other relationship. And we saw how important a relationship with our parents is and how important it is to God that we honor our parents. This one's different. This reason you'll leave your father and mother And you'll be united to your wife, one man and one woman, committed in a covenant with one another, and the two will become one. They'll become one flesh. See, I've even made it so that you fit together. I created this in a wonderful way. And when you see a marriage, what happens is people will say vows, and you know how you seal those vows, that covenant commitment to one another? It's through sex. And that sex is not just a one-time thing. It's supposed to be an ongoing thing in the marital relationship, and it's a beautiful thing. And if you look through the scriptures, God unashamedly talks about it as a beautiful thing. Now, I don't know who's talked to you about sex and who hasn't talked to you about sex growing up. Maybe your parents never said, you know, dad never said to you as a young man or mom never said to you as a young woman. But you read the Proverbs, and there's a father speaking to his son in Proverbs chapter 5. And you know what he says in Proverbs chapter 5? At the beginning, he talks about, you stay away from the adulterous woman. Her lips drip with honey. She doesn't even realize what she's doing. She will ruin your life. And then he says in verse 15, and he's using a euphemism, poetic language. It's beautiful. Drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well. Verse 16. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in, in the public squares? And it's, it's an of course not. Of course it doesn't. And in verse 17, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain, and he's using a euphemism here. He's talking about his son's body. May your fountain be blessed. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. And then he goes on to describe the wife of his youth. He says, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her breasts. Was that what? May you ever be captivated by her beautiful face that will grow old and you'll still be in sexual commitment to her. See, the verse says, may you ever be captivated by her love. This is the context this happens in, a love relationship between a husband and a wife, between one man and one woman, and a sexual commitment the way that God created it to be. And you go on through the scriptures, and you continue to read, and there's, it's painted again. You read Song of Solomon, you read other parts of scripture. When it's talked about in the marital relationship, it's a beautiful thing. When it's torn out of that context, it's not. And then you read that the father says to his son, after I tell you what it's supposed to look like, why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? This doesn't even make sense. Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? And even if she's not married now, do you think she's going to be married someday? She's somebody's daughter. And she's, and even if she's on a computer screen. She, she's some dad is brokenhearted over that. She's going to belong to someone, right, at some point. Why would you do that? Why would you tear it out of the context? When I've given you a beautiful gift, a gift to be enjoyed, a gift that was created not just for procreation but for pleasure, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. It's a beautiful gift when used in its context. But when torn out of its context, it becomes dangerous and misused. And that's what we've done in our culture. And you think about it, anytime you have a gift that's taken out of its culture, out of its context, it can be dangerous. Like you ever try to take your keys and probably open a, pan, a can of paint? Mess up your key, can't even use your key again. There's repercussions there that, that take place. You ever have somebody give you a gift and they intend for you to use it out of context? It's dangerous stuff. I've had this happen to me. Some of you know me. You know that I'm a guy that you don't spend a lot of money buying power tools for someone like me, okay? 
If you know me, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You don't know me, I'll break stuff if you give me power tools. Like, it's not a good idea. And you can imagine how I felt last Christmas. My mother-in-law bought me a power tool. We were there at Christmas, this whole scene. You know, the nephews were there, nieces were there. The kids are opening up Legos and dolls and all kinds of fun stuff. And I had this one present. I couldn't tell what the box was. And I picked it up and I opened it up while other people were doing stuff. And it was this. And you can imagine why I couldn't tell what it was. It got a cord on it. Okay? So I looked at it and... I didn't know what in the world to do with this thing, and I just kind of politely set it down next to my feet and kind of watched other people do their presents. And then my mother-in-law looked over and said, did you get the buffer? And I looked over, I was like, that must be what that is. Yes, I got the buffer. Thank you. You ever get a present and you want to be grateful, but you don't want to lie? <laughs> so I didn't want to say like, thanks, it's wonderful, I'll use it all the time. I didn't say any of that stuff, but thank you. And I'll confess what's going on inside my wicked heart, and I don't know what you do when you get a gift you don't want, but I'm thinking, is the receipt on the box? <laughs> I hope it wasn't on sale. <laughs> like, I got these thoughts, I'm like envisioning myself taking it back, and you know, looks like it might be expensive, you know, whatever, I, I don't know, I'm just kind of looking at this thing, and she says to me at that point, it's for back rubs. <laughs> what? And I look at the thing, and it says on it, let me just tell you something, it says on it, 3200 RPM. Okay? That's revolutions per minute for you lay folk. Anything that goes 3,200 RPM should not be on my body. <laughs> okay? And then she starts to tell me that her and her husband, Dave, they bought one of these things at a garage sale, and it's different, and they used it as a back rub, and how wonderful it was. You know what I started to call this thing? It's the redneck wheel at my house. That's what I call it. Ironically, I woke up with a backache this morning, but at any rate, I got to say, I'm not using this thing. She gets it after this. After I get to use it for this illustration, I told her, you can have it, because we were talking about it this week. She's trying to take this, this gift out of context. You, you know, it's dangerous. It's going to be black and blue on my body. You don't use, you know, a key to open a paint can. You break the key. You don't use a buffer on your body, okay? And you don't use sex outside the context it was given to you, which is the context of a marital relationship. And some of you are going to say to yourself, but Scott, that's not fair because I'm single and I want to be married or I was married. I know I'm the exception because I was married and I may be widowed or divorced or, or whatever situation. And I've done that before. So God knows I'm different. At least I can go a little bit further in all these things. And you know what you're doing? You're violating the other commandments because you're putting another God before you. You become your own God and you become your own authority because God doesn't say any of those things in his word. What he says in his word is I've given you a gift and it's to be used in a context. Now, you might not be in that context right now. And so you make a commitment to a future spouse. And you make a commitment ultimately to me. Because you realize that sexual sin is different than other sin. And that's why when you commit it, it feels different, doesn't it? There's a different guilt. It's like a scar on your soul, isn't it? And that's why the memories are still there. And you look through the scripture and it's talked about differently. It's talked about as a sin against God. Because get this, whenever you sin against an image bearer of God, you're sinning against God. There's this crazy story in Genesis. You can start reading it in Genesis chapter 37. It's about this young man. He's a good-looking dude, and his dad loves him a ton. In fact, favors him over his other brothers, and so his brothers don't like him. And it's the first story that I believe is the first story in the Scriptures about human trafficking. And what ends up happening in this passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 37 is these brothers sell him into slavery and then lie to dad and say that he's dead. And he gets sold into slavery by those slave traders to a guy in Egypt named Potiphar. And Potiphar's a very wealthy guy there. And what he ends up realizing is that Joseph, the guy that's in this story, in Genesis chapter 39, God's hands on him. Now, I don't know that Potiphar would say it that way, but everything that Joseph does is successful. And so what Potiphar does is he starts to raise him up and put him in charge of his stuff. Because if Joseph is successful, I want him successful over my stuff. It makes sense. And so Potiphar, being a good leader, de delegates everything to Joseph. And then he's there, and the scripture actually says he's handsome and well-built. Potiphar's wife noticed that. And she lusted after, well, after Joseph. And she comes to Joseph and says, you come to bed with me. And look at Joseph's response. In Genesis chapter 39, verse 9, No one's greater in this house than I am. My master, referring to Potiphar, has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. This is before the Ten Commandments. But Joseph knew there's a, there's a special commitment that takes place there. See, it's before, it was at the time of creation. One man, one woman, and you've gained this commitment, and you've sealed that commitment. You're his wife. You're off limits to me. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against not Potiphar, not my master, who's put me in charge of everything, and he can have anything but you? 
not even himself, and not her, how could I sin against God? Why does he say that? Because whenever you sin against an image bearer, and it can be an image on a computer screen, it can be an image of a, you could not know the name, you could know the name, it could be a coworker. Whenever you do this, you're taking an image bearer and you're using that image bearer for your own consumption. Rather than serving that person and loving that person as we're commanded to do in Scripture, and it ultimately brings glory to the one who's put his image in each one of those people, what you're doing is you're reducing them to a loaf of bread, the Scriptures will teach us. You're making them an object for you to consume for your personal satisfaction torn out of the context of a marital relationship. Whether it's in your mind, whether it's a physical act, whatever, you're doing that and you're sinning against God. So you make a commitment to God. God, I've never done it before. You recommit. I'm gonna, I want to be, I want to experience the gift the way that you've intended it to be given because we're sinning against God. That's why David, you see the ultimate Old Testament sex scandal is David, the king. Sins with Bathsheba, it's a very popular story. You can read about it in 2 Samuel. And what ends up happening is he, he sins. He sees this woman. He lusts after her. She's married to someone else. He has sex with her anyway. She gets pregnant. So he kills her husband to try and cover it up. So he's committed murder. He lies. He sinned against her. He's, got, he's carried it on for a time period. And then in Psalm 51, verses 2 through 4, you know what he says? He started, he's confessing his sin. And he says, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me, isn't it? And then verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. What about Uriah? He murdered Uriah. What about Bathsheba? What about his, his child that is lost in childbirth? What about himself? What about his kingdom? What about everybody that was subject to him? This is against you, God. As I've sinned against these image bearers, I've sinned against you. And ultimately, you alone. As I've taken people and used them for my own consumption, rather than serving the ones who bear your image. See, that's what we do when we tear God's gift out of context. And here's the really bad news. We're all guilty. Every one of us is guilty. Maybe you were married as a virgin, and maybe you've never read a sultry romance novel. Maybe you've never logged into a pornographic website. Maybe you've never had sex with someone who wasn't your spouse. But you're guilty. And Jesus tells us that. Tell us in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, the only way that we can actually get into heaven is if our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the most righteous dudes you've ever heard of. Way more righteous than anyone you'll meet today, practically. But they still had wicked hearts. And Jesus says this to them. In Matthew chapter 5, he's speaking to them. says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And that's true. The commandment is quoted properly. What he's teaching against when he says, but I tell you, he's teaching against the applications and the misinterpretations of that commandment. But I say to you, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, adultery is a sin that happens well before it gets to your hand, well before you log onto a computer screen, way before you pick up that romance novel, way before you start fantasizing about that coworker. Adultery is an issue of the heart, and we all have jacked up hearts. And I don't know where you're at in your sexual purity today, but all of us at one point in time have blown it in this area. And if you think you haven't, I would seriously love to meet you. I don't say that sarcastically. Because I think you're so unique. I remember when I was taught that lust was actually adultery. I, was a, I became a Christian when I was 18 years old. And I remember thinking to myself, the two things you've got to do to be a good Christian is you've got to stop partying and, and don't mess around with girls. And so I thought you could think about whatever you wanted. Like, look, don't touch and all that kind of deal. And a guy sat down with me and shared with me this verse and was telling me a story that a guy who led me to Jesus. And I actually thought he was joking. Because lust was like a hobby for me at that point. Like, if you can't do it, you just don't think about it. Like, you're not hurting anybody, right? And he tells me this thing, and I'm thinking to myself, you've got to be kidding. You can't actually think about it? How can you not think about it? It doesn't even make sense to me. And what it is, is even when you're doing that in your mind, you're tearing the gift out of its context. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about this. C.S. Lewis says this, The Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism, the male and the female were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on a sexual level, but totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds, 
like transparency and vulnerability and connecting on an emotional level and actually talking and conversing with one another. I'm trying to isolate it from all other kinds of union, which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. That's being used in its context. The, the Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure anymore than about the pleasure of eating. And here's his analogy. It means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting, by chewing things and spitting them out. Now, who does that? I mean, we all eat food because we like the taste, right? My wife made uh, meatball subs the other day for me to watch uh, football games. And so I'll eat this meatball sub. I don't go, mm, that tastes good. Pfft, you know, spit this. Who does that? But I got the taste. That's what we're doing. We log onto a website. When we have a sexual fantasy, when we go through these things, is we're, tearing, we're just deciding we're going to consume one part and we're going to neglect all the other. Do you know why we do that? Because we want the sex without the commitment. In fact, I was talking to a guy via Facebook yesterday. Uh, you might remember him. He came about a year ago. He's uh, an expert in pornography. His name's Tal Prince. Had a 24-year pornography addiction himself. Uh, came and preached to us uh, for, about Samson and did a seminar afterwards that several men and women came to. And he was just talking about sexual addiction and sexual sins and some of those types of things. He's got a uh, radio show, Tal Prince Live. But he and I were Facebooking back and forth because he said something at my house. And I want to make sure I didn't mess it up. He didn't say it in front of the whole group. But he was talking about how uh, a guy who's addicted to pornography, given the opportunity to choose internet porn in one room and a willing spouse in the other, will overwhelmingly choose internet porn. Do you know why? Because there's an intimacy disorder there. At the internet porn, there's, there's no cost. There's no wooing. There's no romancing. There's no need for emotional connection. It's just an object on a screen, and you consume, and then it's gone, and you go to the next object on the screen, and you consume, and then it's gone, and you don't have to worry about bad breath, and you don't have to worry about how the relationship status is. You don't have to worry. There's no cost involved, and so that's the lie. That's the deception that takes place there, and some of you maybe never logged onto a website, but doesn't happen in your heart. You ever look to see the lust according to that passage of Scripture? It's when you look at someone who's not your spouse. It's okay to see someone and think they're attractive. That's God's creation and it's normal. But when you go that next step and you start to think about what could be, or that person, that guy's so much better than my husband, or, or that, wife, that woman, you know, she, my wife, she's gotten a little bit older now, and this, she's so younger, and it'd just be one time, and who would know? And I'm just thinking, I'm not touching, and it's all deception. And it's all trying to get you to buy a lie of something that you can have, but wasn't intended to be yours because when you say yes to one you say no to all the others and if you haven't said yes to one yet there's one out there that you're committed to and ultimately you're sinning against God anyways and everyone doesn't get every gift at the exact same time and there's this gift that's given and we've all blown it in this area bad news here's the good news purity is possible see sexual commitment comes at a cost always comes at a cost every commitment does but purity is possible, both at a heart level and in a practical level. It's very possible. But in order for that to be possible, you must understand what's taking place when you are tempted to sin. I just want to share a passage of Scripture with you. I shared with my kids the other day. We weren't talking about this topic. We were talking about sin. And James outlines what you can call the cycle of sin. He makes it real clear. And everybody's sinned before, so everybody's been through this cycle. But let me just read it to you. James says in James chapter 1, verse 13, When tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me. Now, lots of people say this in lots of different ways. God made me this way. He's the one who gave me these desires. Whatever type of thing you want to say, plug it in there. And then you go and you do your sinful activity. He says, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But let's get real honest about what's taking place here, James says. I love James. He's so blunt. But each one is tempted. When by his own, they're your desires. When by his own evil desires, you own them. They belong to you. When by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. This is how it starts, the sin cycle. I was telling my kids, the metaphor that's being used here uh, by teachers in that time frame, when they talk about being enticed, it's the word bait. It's the idea of bait on a hook for a fish. If you've ever been fishing before, you know what happens is you take, you've got a deadly hook there that you want to get them with, but you put an attractive bait on the hook. And what happens is the fish will see the bait. They'll be enticed. 
So they're taken away from whatever they were doing and whatever other commitments you've ever made and whatever you're thinking about, about your future and your family and your faith and all those types of things. And now you see the hook, or you don't see the hook, you see the bait and you're enticed. And then he goes on and talks about what happens at that point. He's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire, your own evil desire, has conceived. So we all have these desires. But then you're enticed. And now it's conceived. That's when you make the decision, I'm going to go for it. It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full-blown, full-grown, gives birth to death. And so you see the bait and you go after the bait. And maybe it's a person or maybe it's an image or maybe it's an idea or a concept. And you see it and then you decide, forget all the stuff I've thought about before and all the decisions I've made before. I'm going for this one. And all that stuff goes away and you go for it and you get it and you have the bait. And it's good. And it's enjoyable. Until you get the hook and the consequences and the guilt and the scars and the difficulty and ultimately the separation from God, which is death. And the fish gets pulled out of the water, right? Ends up in the boat and it gets consumed. This so gives birth to death. And then James gives us real practical advice on what to do. Verse 16 Don't buy the lie. Don't be deceived. My dear brothers, he's not trying to withhold anything from you. He's saying, people who I care about, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. And then so perfect for the message we're talking about today, verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above. Every good gift comes from God. He's not holding out anything from you. He's not trying to keep you from enjoying him. You don't ultimately even have to have this in order to be complete. Jesus was single and monogamous. It wasn't just a concept. Paul says it's better. You can be more focused on other things. But if you burn in your lust, then go get married. It's God created. It's a good gift. It's okay to be pleased in this good gift. In fact, he uses it to be to fulfill all other commands. Be fruitful and multiply. To enjoy the wife of your youth. To do all those types of things. It's wonderful. A gift comes from him, and when you try to use a lie, and our sex-saturated society is filled with lies, then you've missed the gift that he's offering. He says that he doesn't change. This gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He doesn't change because the Internet's invented. He doesn't change because your circumstances have changed. He doesn't change like he didn't know something was going to happen in your life, and you were going to be widowed, or you were going to be left, you were going to be abandoned, you were going to be divorced. He doesn't change. He's still offering this gift, not to be used outside of this context. And see, what happens is, so many times, because the enemy is such a deceiver, is that people are supposed to be enjoying this gift. They don't. Because they don't want to pay the cost of intimacy, of transparency, of vulnerability, of honesty, of communication. They don't want to pay those other costs of intimacy. And so married couples don't do it. And people that aren't supposed to be doing it, they do. Because we believe the lies. And James says, you don't be deceived. Let me tell you something. Some of us have been deceived a lot of times. And some of you, uh, you're in, in the sexual sin, and it's there, and you think, what do I do? Well, Jesus talked about that too. In Matthew chapter 5, he says what to do after he says that anyone who commits lust in his heart after a woman has committed adultery, he then says this, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And then he says, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So there's a procedure for this situation. <laughs> and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. So what's Jesus saying here? Because we don't see a lot of people. I'm sexual sin something everybody has struggled with at one time. But we don't see a lot of people walking around with one eye missing and a hand cut off. So we either don't take the scripture seriously. That's not what he's talking about. He's, not, he's saying, this is hyperbole. And he's speaking to a Jewish audience. And he's speaking specifically even to these Pharisees, these Jewish men. And the idea with the Jewish audience was your right eye was your best vision. Your right hand represented your best skill. He's saying, I don't care what it costs you. So your, your hand and your eye aren't causing you to sin. Jesus already made it clear. It's a heart issue. But I don't care what it costs you. You do whatever it takes to pursue the purity. And I remember being taught this as a new believer. And uh, this guy came to me, and he it was over at a friend's house. I, was, I trusted Christ when I was 18. I was probably about 19 years old. I'm hanging out at a buddy's house. And uh, some dads, you know, they're afraid to talk to their own kids about sex. I can give this dude some props. 
because he didn't care about awkwardness, okay? He's talking to me, and I don't even hardly know him. This older Christian guy comes in, and he says to me, Scott, what are you going to do if you're put in a sexually compromising situation? <laughs> uh, tell me about awkward. Remember when you were 19, this old Christian guy? I'm a new Christian. I don't know hardly anything about the Bible. I know like three verses, right? But I'm feeling really good about that question because I just memorized a verse about sin. <laughs> so I'm treating it like a Bible quiz. Like he says, what are you going to do in an old Christian guy? So I'm like, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you, but that which is common to man. God's faithful. He'll allow you to stand up under it when you're tempted, and he'll get, provide a way out for you even. And I, I quote that with him. <laughs> he wasn't impressed with my three-verse Bible knowledge. <laughs> and uh, he said, Joseph didn't have 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. I'm like, who's Joseph? <laughs> I don't know anything. And he starts to tell me the story about Joseph. He says, you know what Joseph did? He ran. You see, when Potiphar's wife came to him, you know what he did? He ran. You run, Scott. And then he started to tell me a story. His wife's standing right there. He starts to tell me a story about when he was a young man and a woman got real aggressive with him and what he did. He said, you do whatever it takes. What Jesus is saying here, he says, cut off your hand, you gouge out your eye, you do whatever it takes. You get rid of the computer, you need to get the computer out of the house. You quit that job. You need to quit your job because somebody's doing something inappropriate, you quit that job. Some of you, you might be single, you might be married, you know there's another person and they are like kryptonite to you. And all those commitments and all of this stuff, it's like it goes away in that moment. Some of you, you feel so lonely and you think it's the only way you can get that person, you get rid of that relationship. You do whatever it takes because this is so serious. Some of you, I know that you've blown it a lot of times. Let me say this to you. You can't outsend the cross. You cannot outsend God's forgiveness. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, and I don't know if it was a weird situation, if it was a bunch of time situation, I don't know what the details are. I don't need to know. God knows. And whatever it is, and however many other people's spouses it was, and however many images it was, He forgives. He can forgive every sin. Now, let me say this. That doesn't mean those of us who know that he forgives go out and sin because he'll forgive all of our sins. He can't be mocked and manipulated either. You don't go out and sin because he forgives every sin. You need to know that. But you also need to know that whatever sin you've committed, he will forgive. That's by your grace, he redeems you and brings you back into even better relationships, stronger relationships. You can ask different folks at our church. Michael and Tori, they shared their story before the message. There's another couple, Randy and Nikki Fenske. Randy told me I could share his story. If you get his story, when he starts to share it, what ends up happening is, Randy tells you he was a cultural Christian. And in case you don't know what a cultural Christian is, it's this. It's somebody who knows, they go to church, somebody who knows stuff about God, and they've gotten the idea of kind of how the Christian culture works. Let me be very clear. It's not a Christian, okay? It's somebody who probably believes in God, believes the Bible, uh, lives a pretty good life, all that kind of stuff, and knows the jargon. You know, you hung around long enough, you can kind of pick up how Christians talk with one another, things to say, things not to say, things to do, things not to do. And that's a cultural Christian. That's not a real Christian, okay? But that is a cultural Christian. That's what he said his life was like. Had a good family, uh, two kids, two wonderful kids, married a beautiful woman named Nikki, had a nice house, had a nice job. He rationalized in his mind because he provided for his family so well that he deserved to be able to do some other things, like go out on drinking binges, and have sex with multiple different women. And what ended up happening, the way that God worked in their stories, he brought them here to North Carolina, and after they were here in North Carolina for a little while, God gripped Randy's heart, pulled him out of cultural Christianity. And see, that's the difference between a cultural Christian and a real Christian, is that God's gripped their heart. Has God ever gripped your heart? And he gripped Randy's heart, pulled him out of that cultural Christianity, and brought him to a real relationship with him, forgived him, washed him, cleansed him. He was a new man. Old things were gone. New things had come. We started to do amazing work in the whole family's life. They were committed. They were serving at church, teaching Sunday school at the church that they were at. Uh, they were telling other people about Jesus. <laughs> Only about 50% of us do that, believe it or not. He's, they were telling people about Jesus. It was amazing. He transformed their life. But he couldn't bring himself to tell Nikki about the, uh, the adulterous relationships he had. And if you ever hear Nikki's story, Nikki tell you a story that her greatest fear is that her husband would cheat on her because she had found out that her, her dad had adulterous relationships on her mom and devastated her. And she had suspected at times that maybe Randy had, had cheated on her, but there was never any proof. And that was her greatest fear. And they were here, and then there were years where he, through the years, he would try to share it, and God would prompt him, but then he'd put it away or explain a reason why not to, and what could happen, you know, all that kind of stuff. He doesn't, doesn't share it with her. And one night, Nikki, she's telling the story that she's here, they're living here in North Carolina, been about three or four years, they're committed followers of Jesus. She starts to have this dream. 
In her dream, she's calling Randy Mr. Perfect. And then Randy says in the dream, I'm not perfect. And then she starts to laugh. She wakes up laughing, like, I know you're not perfect. <laughs> and then can you imagine for a moment if your spouse wakes up next to you laughing? <laughs> what are you laughing about? I was dreaming you were perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what happened. Uh, but now they're awake. And Randy uses this opportunity to start to say, Nikki, there's some things I need to tell you. And he starts to tell her about the adulterous affairs, relationships, sex that he's had. And she starts to ask questions, and he starts to give answers, even though the answers are painful. And they lay there. The sun hasn't even come up yet. And they just lay there and have this conversation. Eventually, Nikki says, uh, can I just have a minute? I need to go in the restroom. She goes in the restroom. She sits on the floor. Says, what now, Lord? What now? They go out and they have this conversation. Everything doesn't get fixed in a conversation. Okay, this is real life, not a TV show. And they don't know what to do. And so she goes to some friends. She has a, a Christian leader tell her, you leave him. You can leave them now. And her pastor says to her, you work through this and you'll be blessed. And then God starts to speak to her heart. You know what God spoke to her heart? I forgave you too, right? And, and he starts to empower her through the power of his spirit to forgive. And there's more conversations. And is it immediate? No. Is it easy? No. But has it happened? Yes. She forgives him just as Christ forgave her and Christ forgave him. And she knows now what it is to forgive. And now she's so open with this. That she's one of our leaders at Celebrate Recovery. It meets on Thursday night, 7 o'clock, to talk to people who are struggling with how to forgive. And there's some people, Randy's there periodically too, or when he's not working and he, he comes to talk to people, you want to know how to tell the truth about your sin? And there's multiple other leaders that are there to talk through those kinds of things. And you know why? Because now they know what it is to be free. Can you imagine what it would be to be fully known and still be fully loved? even with another human being? And some of you, you think to yourself, I can never tell my spouse about that adulterous relationship or my computer issue or the things that I did before we were married. Because besides, it was before we were married or it's just in my mind and it doesn't hurt anybody and we moved on now and things are way better now. And, so we, and you come up with all kinds of reasons that aren't in there. And you're actually robbing yourself of what it is to have a real relationship, real intimacy, to be fully known and to be fully loved. You see, God can forgive. It does, I don't know if it's a thousand times, it's a million times, a billion, I don't know how many times. You can't out the cross. He will forgive you. But he's got a plan for you. And if you want real freedom, then you operate within his plan. And his plan is he's given this gift to be intended for a sexual commitment and a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Do you know what that means? That means the cost. And the cost is saying no to all other deception that's out there. And if you come to him and you've blown it, he says, I will forgive you. Just like he does with the woman in John chapter 8. But then he says to her, you go and you sin no more. I'm going to change you. I want you to live a changed life. I want you to live in that freedom. See, God's for sexual commitment. The question for us as his followers is, are we? So are you. What we're going to do as we conclude today is we're going to just give you a few moments to talk to the Lord. And you might need to talk to him about a conversation you need to have with a spouse. You might need to repent of sin. You might need to thank him for his protection and circumstances you can remember. But I just want you and God to spend some time alone. And be able to connect with him and ask him, do you say, are you saying the things that he's saying up there? Could you really offer me unlimited forgiveness? Will you please forgive me and be washed by the blood of Jesus Christ? Some of you need to repent from cultural Christianity and trust Jesus Christ to be your Savior. I'm just going to give you some moments to do that. The worship team is going to come. They're going to play some music just while we spend some time in prayer. But let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence. We thank you that you allow us to speak with you. Even as sinful beings with adulterous hearts, God, that you care about us, that you pursue us, that you come after us, and that you won't let anything, even that, even our sexual sins separate us from you. Will you please remove sexual sin from each one that's hearing these words right now? And I'll just give you some moments to talk to the Lord on your own.